You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos. I hate calling myself that. And underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. It's that time again. It's time for another episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you every week by myself, Matt Bacon, um, who I'm starting to tolerate a little bit better with each episode. We have a good friend of ours on this week's episode, Vaughn Lewis, co-founder of Unchained Management. I think you're the first manager that we've had on here. So this should be- Yeah, we had Blasco on. Oh, we had Blasco. That's true. I guess Blasco is a management slash slash artist. So I guess I'm the first tour manager. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I myself have known you, Vaughn, for many, many years now, but we've never really delved into um, what it is you actually do and how you got there. You're just sort of this mystery man to me that's involved <laughs> peripherally, uh, you know, to all the stuff that I do. And but I don't know anything about you, really. So um, other than you're 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 the, always the most handsome guy in the room. Well, thank you. You're too kind. Where are you right now? I can, I, I can see you and I can see you have what looks like a trillion cds and many leather bound books yeah i'm in my home office which is a bit of a mess i am definitely a uh, a, a collector of all things music so i've got you know vinyl and cds and books everywhere all over my place this is this is just a small sampling i mean that looks like that's got to be thousands and thousands of cds right there yeah i've got tens of thousands of cds and vinyl for sure wow amazing Easily. yeah I'm keeping the music business in, in business. <laughs> <laughs> What's your end game? Do you, are you going to sell them one day when they're worth a lot of money or? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't thought that far ahead. I mean, that's the same thing with me. I have, you know, I have over 10,000 fights on DVD. I've got probably a magazine, boxing magazine collection that goes back to the 1920s. I got probably 4,000 wow. issues. I've spent literally tens of thousands of dollars curating, but I have no, I guess yeah. I'm just going to die one day. And, and someone else will have to figure it out. Nat- Natalie will sell it off in a fire sale for pennies on the dollar. I don't know. Yeah. I've already been told that I can't be buried with all my stuff. So someone will figure it out. So you were strong management and now you're on chain management. So let's start there, I guess. Yeah. In the early part of this year, this has been in the, in the going for a while. We, we merged our companies. Our company was formerly Strong Management Music and our cohort, Steve Davis, who had Davis Entertainment. And uh, we've been talking about this for a while and uh, we were going to do it right before the pandemic started, but then we decided to wait. 
And then when, when we realized that the pandemic may never end, uh, we went ahead and did it early this year. So it's essentially, you know, Steve's roster has, you know, ministry, cannibal corpse, white chapel, et cetera, et cetera. And our roster is Kill Switch Engage, Memphis Mayfire, various producers, uh, Times of Grace, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's just one big company. And the idea is just that we have, you know, uh, together the roster is stronger. And um, as people, we're all very different people. And uh, we all bring something really unique to the whole thing. And it, uh, it's just nice to have an extra person to bounce ideas and things off of. So, uh, so the new company is Unchained now. So named after the Dokken song or? Or after the Van Halen song. That's such, that's such a dorky like thing to pull out of your back pocket, Chris. <laughs> it has some merit because both of those things in my head somewhat kind of like fit, you know, great name. And it's ironic because, you know, we had this name, you know, before, you know, long before obviously Eddie Van Halen passed away. And then the other thing too is just, we also look at ourselves as kind of like unhinged, kind of a, uh, you know, we do what we do. Um, there's no rules. There's no, so everything, everything kind of fit. But yes, I love the Van Halen and Dokken reference tremendously. See, there you go, Matt. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> you said at the end of your little thing there, you said, you know, at, at the roster's stronger. And then as individuals, you know, you and, and Steve and Kenny and, uh, is that the, the only three people involved? Those are the three. We're the three owners. And then there's two employees. We have Jason in Chicago. And Jason has an assistant in Chicago. So you said we all, we all bring something different to the table. So what do you bring to the table? I mean, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm fairly creative, you know, working with the artists on their, on their creativity. Uh, you know, I'm the guy that people bounces uh, ideas off of as far as what they're doing with mixes and so, so on and so forth. And I'm kind of a risk taker. I'm okay with change. I dive right into change. Other people in the mix bring a different level of, you know, reeling me back in when I need to be reeled back in or asking the questions that make what I want to do, you know, really viable. Like if I get it through those two guys, then I know I, I got something. Um, so for people out there listening right now, what is it that you do? Walk us through what you do. You know, a lot of it depends on the artists, but the long and short of it is... You know, you guide people's careers. You come up with, you know, if they're unsigned, you find a label or, or, or in this day and age, a way to put music out. If they don't have a booking agent, you find the right booking agent. You find the right lawyer. You build a team. Then you set a strategy. When is music going to come out? How is music going to come out? How are you going to tour? When are you going to tour? Who are you going to tour with? Set up an entire schedule. And then along those lines, make decisions based on, you know, what the artist's career goals are, um, how they do things, and just kind of build an overall plan uh, of their, you know, that's going to lay out their whole career. So essentially, we're like the conduit between the artist and all of the business. We're, we're kind of the, the, the in-between, the closest to the artist. That's the long and short of it. There's also a lot of other, you know, you're, you're definitely a psychiatrist. You're, you know, you can, you, you can be a babysitter sometimes, a talker off the ledge. You know, there's lots of little twists and turns that happen within it. But, you know, what I would say is I'm all of that stuff that I just said and anything else that I need to be whenever the situation arises. And that always changes. Matt should consider hiring you because he's, he definitely could use a psychiatrist and a babysitter. So <laughs> I'm here for you, Matt. 
<laughs> Great. <laughs> okay, so you know, you know, everyone hears about management companies and bands always talk about their management team. And now you're at a place where you just merged your company and you've got, you know, combined these great bands that you just, you know, mentioned that are on the roster. But how does it start? You know, we've had a lot of our conversations have been on this podcast have been based on when did you first pick up a guitar? When did you know that you wanted to play heavy metal? Like what was the first band you were in? Right. But this is a different conversation, but it's really the same kind of question. Like why be a manager and how did that start? And how do you make your way to a point where now you know, a band like Killswitch Engage, you know, or, you know, some of the other bands you mentioned would put their trust in you. Like, how do you get to that point? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty convoluted story. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of valleys, you know, management, honestly, in the beginning was never, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what that was. I knew really early on, like since I was a teenager that I wanted to be involved in the music business. It was the only thing that really and outside of sports it's the only thing that really like excited me that really just got my interest i had a relative that worked that had kind of a menial job in a booking agency and uh they would bring back like billboard magazine and you know i was 13 years old and i'd be reading billboard magazine cover to cover and the thing that i the thing that for me i got early on was you know record companies and talent and i thought that maybe i would be someone that worked at a label and signed bands, you know, a and Again, I was a teenager. I didn't know anything about anything, but that's kind of how I saw myself. Um, I was kind of the guy who, you know, when nobody heard of Guns N' Roses, I was the one of my friends that was into it early and played it for everybody. And, you know, Metallica, all these bands, like all my friends will tell you, I was the one that kind of got them into all those bands. By the way, where was this? Where'd you grow up? New York City. Grew up in Queens, but I went to high school in Manhattan, which is really a big part of um, the whole process because, you know, in the mid 80s, when you're when you're from the boroughs traveling into Manhattan as a teenager, your world opens up. It's record stores. It's, you know, venues. It's places I probably wouldn't have been really allowed to go to as a teenager. But because I was already going into the city to go to high school, I was able to kind of make my way a little further down. And, and New York, really, honestly, is a big just part of the whole thing because it's um you know you had access to everything you saw everything uh, you saw everything early you know i saw a lot of bands come up early i saw you know these melding of worlds and these this, this this melding of music and it was definitely a huge a huge influence on me for sure the long and short of how i got started you know i wanted to work at a label did you play any instruments or play any music funny enough i played piano i played classical piano because my parents wanted me to I did that for about 10 years and that's pretty that's pretty good and i also played the french horn in high school junior high school and high school so i was actually a pretty decent musician like i can read i can read music for whatever reason i never got into playing you know guitar or playing drums um when i saw my friends who did it i just kind of assumed i couldn't i would never be as good as, as they were and again growing up in new york you you're around a lot of interesting folks and again i think the I always saw myself from the beginning as someone who could help talented people get their stuff out there. That's always kind of, I always saw myself as like the conduit to that. I never saw myself as a, you know, creative person that, you know, I could read music. You know, if you put some sheet music on piano back then, I could play it, but I never wrote anything. And I identified that pretty early on that, you know, helping creatives was more my way. The long and short of how I got started, you know, my senior year of college, um, I got it in my head that I was going to go to law school. I, I thought that, um, again, growing up in the 80s, a lot of, you know, there was, a, there was a decent amount of executives in the music business who, who were all lawyers. So I thought I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to get a law degree. And instead of being a lawyer, I would 
be in the music business. I got over that real quick in college. I decided why the hell would I want to go to law school for three years, knowing full well I don't want to practice law. So I did an internship the summer of my senior year of college, but the summer before my senior year. A friend of mine that I grew up with, Steve Poss, rest in peace, he was working at Epic Records. His friends uh, were running the promotion department, Mike Schnapp, and Brian Lima was running the retail department in the, in the metal department at, at Epic. So Steve brought me in, and those guys didn't treat me like an intern. They, they treated me like I was working there. So Brian was the head of retail. He would literally, you know, we, they were setting up, they were working a Suicidal Tendencies album, an Alice Cooper album. They were setting up No More Tears. Ozzy was coming out later that year. They were setting up Pearl Jam's first record, which would come out like right after I, right after the summer, the end of the summer. So there was a lot of stuff going on. Motorhead, they were working a Motorhead record. Motorhead and Alice Cooper on tour together. Suicidal was on tour at Metallica. He would go on the road and I would answer all these calls from record stores about, you know, tickets to shows, sending them POP, which was, you know, you know, all the billboards and all the stuff you would send to a record store to advertise these records. And these guys all thought I was working there. They didn't know I was an intern. And, um, you know, it was, it was exciting because you were in it. You know, and this is, again, this is kind of old school when there were a ton of independent retail stores. After that, I graduated and the plan was I was hoping to get a job there. Long story short, nothing materialized. I, I stayed in, in touch and I saw those guys, you know, those guys then went on, you know, I watched them break Ridge Against the Machine. A year or two after that, I watched them break corn. So even though I wasn't interning there, I, I felt kind of a part of it because I was always around those guys and watching those things happen. At some point, I ended up working on Wall Street kind of a crazy story that I won't go too far into, but the good thing about it was because it wasn't what I wanted to do, I kind of kept failing upward and they kept promoting me, even though I didn't want to do it. And the whole time I'm looking for jobs at different record companies and, you know, I'd work during the day, I'd go to shows at night. And that was kind of my life for four years. Then uh, I did an internship, quit like a really good high paying job. And I did an internship at uh, TBT Records, which was the company at the time that Nine Inch Nails First record came out, came FDM, later on Seven Dust. The owner was a really, you know, kind of rough guy. He, he didn't have a reputation for being great to artists. And I was young and I was idealistic. And I decided at that point that I didn't want to work at a label. That I, I thought, you know, labels were bad. And, you know, I didn't like the way, you know, I, I wanted to work with artists. I didn't want to work against artists. So at that point, I was really kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I didn't know anything else really in the music business. I took up a hobby of photography. I just started taking pictures and, you know, I had in my head that maybe I would go to shows and take pictures and maybe that's how I could, you know, be involved. So I started taking my camera. I bought a nice camera. Um, I got really good at it. Started going to local hardcore punk shows, you know, basically shows where you didn't need a photo pass. I'd bring my camera, I'd take photos. And through that, I met all these different bands. Um, this band needed a photo for, for this, or this band needed a photo for their record. Then you start meeting label people. You know, they have a shot of the singer and the bass player for the album, but they don't have a shot of the drummer and the guitar player. So I met a lot of people through that. Uh, and this one band, H2O, that I became really tight with the singer, Toby. Um, just, you know, clicked, hung out a lot. And uh, one day he was moving from like one side, one department from Lower East Side to another department. I helped him move. And uh, he's like, you know what? We're going on tour. Um, we need someone to sell merchandise. You should come out with us. 
And at the time I was on my, my I, I just started my third job in investment banking. I didn't like it. And I thought, you know what? I'll go on tour. I'll, I'll see the country for six weeks. Maybe this will be something that I do. Maybe not, but maybe, you know, screw it. Let's, let's just go for it. So I went on tour and um, the band, you know, we would show up late. Again, this is like pre-iPhones. You didn't have directions. You got lost. You showed up two hours late. I'm standing at these shows, hanging up T-shirts. I've I'd never done it before. There's like 300 kids like standing there with their arms folded, like, you know, hurry up, hurry up. So I go to the band, like, you know what? We should call the club. We should get directions so we don't get lost. We should, we should try to get there like a couple hours early, you know, so I can get everything set up before the show starts. You know, I didn't know that this was tour managing, but that, that's what it was. And by default, I became the tour manager. So a week into the tour, I'm the tour manager and I'm advancing the shows with promoters and doing the merchandise. Then at some point, about a week later, it's all, it's all happened in like two and a half weeks. Their manager at the time was managing uh, the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Like literally that week, it felt like the Boston's just started going through the roof. Um, they were doing well at radio and the managers didn't have any time for them. And uh, they fired their manager from a phone booth. This is how I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself here from a phone booth in like a truck stop. And they turned to me and they said, you're managing. What year was this? This was 1996. Oh my God. Wow. And at this point, like I knew nothing about management, you know, or so I thought, and I told them, you know, you're crazy. And they said, no, 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 you're managing us. Two, two and a half weeks in, I'm managing them. Like, 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 like a week, actually it was like a week and a half, three or four days later, you know, they were signed to a, uh, an independent label called Blackout. They had just put out their first Blackout record, and they were technically free agents for the second record. And uh, their lawyer sends them a fax from Epitaph Records. The owner, Brett Gorowitz, is into the band, wants to sign them. He sends through, like, kind of a one-page deal memo. At the time, you know, Kenny, who, you know, soon later would run Strong Manager with me, you know, he was in law school. He went, he, he did go to law school. He was doing legal, legal music internships. He would borrow contracts that he would read and like basically like kind of study them. He would send them to me. I would read them. So I, so I kind of knew my way around a contract. So they send this one page memo from Epitaph. I look at it. I, I mark it up a little bit. Um, I fax it to, to, to Kenny, you know, back in New York because I'm on the road at this point. He added a couple of things. We send it back to the lawyer. And I remember the lawyer who, who was a, you know, was a big lawyer at the time, still is, goes to the band like, wow, where did you, know, where did you find these guys? This, this, this guy really knows what he's doing. Um, and that was kind of the first time I thought maybe, you know, I knew, I, I knew something. So long story short, we do the tour. We go out to L.A. We meet with the label. We agree in terms to a deal. We have to negotiate it for a couple of months. But basically, I come back home after six weeks and I've now, you know, there's like a day off. I think the after the last show, no one heard from anybody, which is like the typical tour thing. You get home and the next day, no one talks to each other. And then on the second day, everybody hit me back. You know, what about this? What about that? What are we doing with this? What are we doing with that? And that's when I actually realized like, okay, I'm, I'm actually managing this band. So for nine months, I was the manager, merch guy, tour manager. And you know, over time, you know, when you're advancing shows and you're a tour manager, you're, you're, you know, you're calling promoters to get details for the show. A lot of times they would hit me back and I'd be selling merch because I was also the merch guy. So 
Kenny, who was in law school at the time, we started to do this thing where he would advance the shows from home pretending to be me, you know, write all the details down, send me the information and then tell me, you know, this guy sounded cool. This guy sounded sketchy. And I would roll up as if I was the one who spoke to them. And that was kind of Kenny's, you know, kind of beginning of his involvement. So after about nine months, what basically happens is, you know, I had, there's all these bands in New York that I knew from taking pictures. And there's all these bands that I helped out, you know, uh, you know, album shoots. And, I, you know, I was just a photographer guy, you know. Fast forward, I've got this band, H2O, I'm managing them. They have a record deal, you know. So I kind of look like, you know, that hot guy, you know, with these bands, with this band that's done all this stuff in a short period of time. And all these other bands that I like legit knew really well were like, you know, you should manage us. And that kind of got the thought in my head, like, you know, if I came off the road, I, I could pick up, you know, these two bands. And, and the two bands I had in mind were this band Crown of Thorns and this band Fire Night 451. And Crown of Thorns became Scarhead. And then so then I came off the road, I picked up those two bands and then that led to me managing Murphy's Law. And then, it, you know, that's kind of that's kind of how how it all started. The beauty of that world and that culture is that it's very it's very DIY. So everything we did, we did ourselves. And it, and it was a great learning mechanism for the way that I do things now. You know, we were putting out, you know, in some cases, records on our own. We were, you know, in some, with some bands, there wasn't a record label. In some cases, there was no booking agent. So we were setting up, you know, the tours on our own. Or we were, you know, I started talking to people about getting the bands on their tours. And the thing that really came 360 is when I started dealing with people who I'd read about, because remember now, I'm kind of this nerd who was reading Billboard magazine and reading these albums cover to cover, all the liner notes. I knew who played on stuff. I knew who produced stuff. So then fast forward, I'm dealing with these people that have been in the business for years, and I know everything about them. I know what they've done. So when I'm talking to them, I, I come off, you know, not realizing it, but I came off as this guy who really knew, you know, what I was doing. Um, when in reality, I, I just knew who people were and I knew what they did, you know. And that's really how, how it started, you know, how I got to where I got to, you know, over the course of time, we became known, you know, I started when I, when I came off the road and started doing it on my own in the beginning of 97. And then I think um, Kenny graduated law school, did some legal work for like eight or nine months. He was always kind of helping in the background. He decided that he wanted to get more involved and he literally said, I'm quitting this job and, you know, we're, we're going to do this. I told him, you're nuts. I'm not making any money, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. And that, that's how he got involved. And so we kind of got this reputation of like these like self-starters, people who kind of pushed their way in the business. And all the bands are doing pretty well at this point. You know, bands are signed, bands are on tour, bands are going on around the world. We started to know, you know, all the players at the labels. And then, you know, Mike Gitter, who, who was literally a guy that I knew first from seeing him in record stores, even before I was managing bands, I would always run into him in a record store. I don't, I don't even think he knew my name. He just knew that like, he'd see me at shows and he'd see me at the record store. And he was always, he was a guy that would walk up behind you and be like, you know, if you like that album, you should get this, or that's not the good album, get the other one. So fast forward, he's doing A&R at Roadrunner and they were just about to sign Killswitch. They hadn't actually signed yet. And, you know, he said, I think you'd be perfect with these guys. And, you know, we met with them. We met with them at a, in an alleyway in the old Newark minor league baseball stadium. They were playing a WSOU anniversary show. Like, you know, it was like 25 bands on it. And ironically, you know, we laugh about it now, but 
I was accustomed in those days when you met with a band, you know, they'd ask a lot of questions. What can you do for us? What have you done? So on and so forth. Those guys were actually really into a lot of the stuff that I came up around. And that was kind of like enough for them. They were, they were you know, uh, like we kind of mapped out like a potential strategy. And they were like, you know, you're in. It was, it was like the easiest meeting, you know, we've ever done. And, um, you know, 20 years later, we still work with them. So it's literally 20 years ago uh, in September. You know, and then we worked with Asley Dying for a long time. We, uh, you know, we, we work with a, a lot of bands. You know, they, it, it, it ebbs and flows. People come, people go. Sometimes you get fired. Uh, so a lot of times a band breaks up. But, you know, 25 years later now, still here and uh, still doing it. So that's probably the longer version. And I imagine having to continue to learn on the fly because the music business has changed so much in the last 25 years. Constantly changing. Just when you think you got it all figured out, it changes on you. I say this all the time to people, and I think we're fortunate that we, you know, we embrace the change, but you can't, you can't be set in your own way. You got to kind of roll with the way things move and you got to embrace the changes and figure out how to, how to move within the changes. You know, I think the biggest change, honestly, on the management side is that managers do a lot more now because the labels, you know, they're not making as much money. They do a lot less. You know, when I started doing it, all the major labels had tour marketing departments. You had people at the label that called all the promoters and worked out a lot of like, you know, ground floor marketing in every, in every city. That doesn't really exist at a lot of labels anymore. That falls more on, on managers. And then the other thing too is, you know, for a young band coming up, they might not be ready to do a label deal. And just the notion that now you can put records out on your own, you know, that's good, but it, you also have to figure out how to develop, you know, some marketing strategies around, around a self-release. You can't just put it out into the ether. And for as much as anyone want to talk about labels, that's one of the things that they do is, you know, some level of marketing around it. So you, you're constantly learning on the fly. You're constantly changing the way you do things. Um, and I think the change happens more quickly, more often now than it did when we started. You know, you used to see maybe these five-year or 10-year cycles. Now, sometimes it changes every year. And then when you throw a pandemic in the mix, it really changes everything um, and, and turns everything upside down. So, yes, I, I think... A big thing of what we do is kind of embracing these changes and 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 constantly trying to learn. Anyone that tells you they, they know everything or they've seen it all, absolutely not. You've never seen it all. There's always something new and there's always something new to learn. Well, I mean, maybe Doc McGee, he might have seen it all. Doc McGee has seen a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So without naming any names, obviously, change the names to protect the innocent. But like, what are some of the more nightmarish situations you've had to manage? Oh boy. We're just giving it a, an example of a nightmare scenario that managers have to deal with. You know, I've had some situations where I've had some bands that were, uh, that could be pretty rough around the edges out there on the road. So I always laugh about uh, the answering machine days. And when I say that, I mean, when you wake up and you check your answering machine, you never know what message you're going to hear, if it's from the promoter or if it's from the police department. You know, we've had to get some people out of jail. We've had to, you know, we've had brawls <laughs> that we've had to kind of smooth over after the fact and uh, be, be allowed to be able to, to get back into a club. Um, on a serious note, I mean, mental health, uh, addiction. I've taken, I've personally taken people to rehab, which is a really, you know, tough thing to do with 
people that you care about, you know, it's well documented. We've had people leave bands at most times. It's not really a bad time to leave a band, but uh, you know, we've probably had it happen at the worst possible times. And uh, thinking that that situation might be over and, and, but then figuring out how to keep it going and how to, how to, how to build it in. I mean, Kills Jazz, for example, I mean, it's pretty well documented. We've had two singer changes. It's a pretty tough thing to, especially, especially the first time, that's a pretty tough thing to, to overcome as a, as a band. And we were able to help them navigate that. But yeah, I'm definitely leaving out some names because we had one situation where we had a band rough up a guy from another band on the same label. And uh, we didn't hear about it until the label called me. And the label assumed that I knew what was going on. Uh, and of course I didn't <laughs> and I had to have them like, wait, stop, start from the top again. And then, you know, you have to smooth those situations out the, the other band had to go home. And of course my band stayed out on the road because you know, they, yeah, they were the one that left intact. So uh, yeah, those are some fun ones. What's the most fulfilling part of the job? For me, it's easy. A lot of the stuff is, you know, it's tough. You're dealing with business. You're dealing with people. You know, I, I personally, everybody's different. I don't find a lot of the business fun. I find some of it fun. I don't find a lot of it fun. What I love is when I go see one of my bands play and, you know, you see what they do to, to, to that audience. You see, you know, one, when you're seeing an audience grow, when you're seeing uh, a mass of people into the band singing the words, that's, that's the energy that really drives me you know, watching the audience grow because it, it, I look at it as like, I do all this stuff on the side. I do all this work. I do, you know, I sit in front of a computer, I sit in front of a phone and I do all this stuff. But when I get out and see the band, that's when you actually see what you're doing. You know, that's, that's when you actually see like, you know, whether it's working or not. And sometimes it's not. And and sometimes, but, but it's very fulfilling. You know, the first time you go overseas or the first time, you know, first time you go to LA even, you know, um, and then the first time you go overseas and then, you know, you play higher up on a bill in a festival, that's what drives me. And, and then also just when the band feels fulfilled and, you know, that, that's a big deal, you know, watching people buy houses off of, you know, what they've been able to create with whatever help I've been able to, to, to put into it, you know, watch people having kids um, and knowing that, you know, and then being able to provide, you know, for those kids and, you know, watching people grow up, you know, a band like Killswitch I've worked with for 20 years, you know, the guys in H2O, even though I haven't managed them for a long time, they were the first band that I managed. They're still, you know, still my best friends. You know, we were all kids together, you know, and they're still around doing what they do. They have kids, you know, I know their kids, you know, it's just, it's just fulfilling to just be any little bit of a part in that. In, in, in that whole thing. Um, that's what I love. I have so many questions. This is um, almost starting to feel like this needs to be a two-part episode. <laughs> it's already 340, or it's already 40 minutes in. How do you get the trust of labels, never mind bands? Well, you know, I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, I think for me in general, um, I just try to be a straight shooter. I mean, I think that's the easiest way. You know, I, I try to be... I try to tell people where I'm coming from and, and what I think, even if, even if they disagree, I think any label that I've worked with, whether, um, you know, whether they've liked me or not, they know that like what I say is, is, is what I mean. Um, I think the really difficult thing in this day and age for a lot of, for a lot of labels is just the notion that unfortunately, especially on the major label side, 
their goals as a label and the artist's goals are a lot of times very different. You know, um, sometimes the label's goals are to kind of, you know, kind of make money now. You know, like if you're an A&R person at a major label, you might not have a job tomorrow. So, you, you know, you'd rather make those five pennies today than make, you know, 10 pennies tomorrow because you might not be around for tomorrow. As an artist manager, I'm trying to build a career. So it's the exact opposite. Like if, if we can make 10 cents tomorrow, I'd rather do that than make five cents today. So with a label, it's really just about being honest and about just making sure that they understand where you're coming from. You try to like work with them for what, you know, a major label, there's politics, there's, there's things inside the building. You have to be aware of that. You have to be able to, as a manager, navigate it. Um, but you just got to be above boards. Um, and I think with independent labels, I mean, it's I mean, it's the same. I think within the indies, they can understand your long-term vision a little bit more. The way they're set up, they're just able to understand that that vision better. I think it's really just been, you know, again, I'm, I'm very visible because I go to I, I go to a lot of shows. You know, I'm not one of those guys who, who, you know, for me, that's inspiration, whether it's my bands or, you know, other bands. You know, I just like to know what's going on. So, you know, I talk to a lot of people. You know, we all run into each other at shows. We all, you know, we all talk about stuff. And I think that all that kind of general uh, activity, all that general interaction I think just leads, I think we have a reputation of being, you know, very trustworthy in that sense. People might not always agree with us. They might not always like what we do. But at the end of the day, our job is to work for the artists and to make sure that their art is coming together in the way that they want it to come together and that their vision is coming across in the way that they want their vision to come across and that and that, and that it reflects who they are. Um, and I think that's important. You, you kind of have to know what the job is in order to really do the job, you know, in, in the right way. I think. Um, I always tell bands, there's a lot of different ways to get to the same place. Our job is to figure out who they are and put together a plan that reflects who they are, who they are, because every band is different. And just because something worked for this band doesn't mean it, 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 it works for the other band. Um, and I tell that to the labels, you know, when they, you know, cause a lot of times labels will tell you, well, this worked for this band. And sometimes what works for that band might work for this band, but sometimes it won't. And you can't be afraid to say, you know, I know that worked for that very successful band, but it just isn't who that band is. And I think at the end of the day, most labels appreciate that honesty rather than go along with the idea and then sabotage it along the way, which happens often. That's a long, I don't know, it's a long-winded way of, uh, of answering that question, I think. Well, listen, man, that's been 40 minutes already. I'm fascinated, though. I want to continue this conversation. I know you're a busy guy. Do you think you'd be able to come back at some point? I'd love to. We basically got up to about, like, you know, 2001. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I want, I want to talk about more of your individual experiences with bands and what the future holds and yep. how you navigated through the pandemic. Like there's a lot to talk about here. I'd love to do it again. I guess we have our second two-parter, Matt. I love it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Who's the Tom. first one? Blasco was the first one. Figures. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You managers, man. You guys talk and talk and talk. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the, for this first now part one. We will reach out on the side and get you scheduled for a part two. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Honestly, I, I, this is the first one of these I've done. This is this was awesome. Where can people find Unchained Management? Where, where, where can they go? Um, you can go to the website, unchainedhq.com. And we're pretty much on all of the social platforms, you know, Unchained HQ. And then uh, I'm up I'm up on all the platforms personally at Vaughn Lewis. Got it. We're, we're pretty, pretty easy to find. All right. Well, to be continued, sir. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you. All right. So that was awesome. 
Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love or want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast <laughs>